Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. An original audio drama series from the BBC World Service. Fukushima tells the story of the 2011 disaster at Japan's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. We lose the Daiichi plant, then we lose Japan as we know it. Listen to the series now by searching for Fukushima wherever you get your BBC podcasts. I could possibly be in the last couple of years of my life without those maggots. And I don't think I'm being dramatic saying that. If I'd had further amputations going up that leg, which would have been a high chance of that happening, had I not had the maggots put on, then I might not be here today. Well, Melanie is a maggot superfan after watching those larvae eat the decaying flesh from her foot. What about you? I'll be honest, I'm not too sure yet. It sounds quite yucky still, I'll be honest. I'm James Gallagher, and on today's discovery from the BBC World Service, we're going to get upfront and personal with maggots. I'll be talking to Melanie in a lot more detail in a bit, and I'm going to meet scientists determined to unleash the powers of the maggot. Because there is a real need here. The rise of antibiotic-resistant infections, those that are getting really hard to treat, superbugs, it means we need new types of therapy, and that includes maggots. So first, what we're going to do is see where the maggots are being made, how they're produced, and how they become safe to be used as a medicine. So I've come to a rather innocuous-looking warehouse in the Welsh town of Bridgend. And this, this is a maggot farm. Hello, my name's Micah Flores. I'm an R&D research project manager here at Biomont. We're standing outside of our, our fly room, so it's a temperature-controlled room. Keep it at 27 degrees, give them 12 hours of light, 12 hours of dark, and they think it's summer all year long. We can consistently then control how often they're going through their generations and their life cycles. On a thoroughly miserable day in South Wales, <laughs> yes. I'm actually a little bit jealous. Yes, oh yeah, we'll go in there in a bit and you'll get to feel how warm it is. Obviously, Michael, there's lots of different types of flies. Which ones do you choose to use for this? Are the same ones that when I went on holiday a couple of years ago and came back to a bin that was crawling in maggots and flies buzzing everywhere because yes. I hadn't taken the bins out before I went yes. and it was a scene. I think that's everyone's summertime problems for sure. So it is a specific fly. There's actually probably over 150,000 fly species and we use a single one. So it's called Lucilia sericata. It's a common green blowfly and it is one that you would see out in the normal environment. They will come to especially compost or your, your food waste but we also see them in forensic cases as well so they come to decomposing things but the ones we keep in here are pretty clean and it's a closed colony so we don't introduce any wild flies to this colony so it's been closed since about 2007 or 8 or so and we'll take some of those eggs disinfect them and we'll talk about that in a bit can we go see how that happens yes let's go see some maggots great James, now we're inside of the fly room. You can feel the temperatures change drastically. It's a lot warmer. Yeah. It's a bit pongy in here. <laughs> yes. So, um, you know, we've got 
four weeks worth of fly cages, and so the older ones are going to smell a little bit differently just because they, they've had their protein. They're going to excrete things and, and poop all over the and cages. it almost sounds like it's raining. Yes. And that's just that's fly wings flies. beating. Yes, so you can tap on the cage and sort of agitate them a little bit. So, yeah, very active, happy, healthy, ready to lay some eggs when we need it. And there are boxes and boxes and boxes of them. Yes. How so many flies? About 24,000 flies in this room separated into four different weeks of age week three and four ready to lay eggs for us and then week one and two just hatching so they've got water they've got sugar and a lovely pair of ladies tights at the top i, I had noticed that <laughs> sure there's a reason yes we used to have complex cages and when we acquired our german business this is how they did it plastic box ladies tights on top a breathable lid breathable lid allows air exchange and the feet actually act as arm cuffs to put your hands in there and add the protein and collect eggs and then you just tie it in a nice little knot at the top and they can't escape how long did it take you to be completely cool with working with flies as a living that's one of the questions we ask our operators when we do hire them how squeamish are you i mean i've, I've been working with flies for about 16 years now so this is nothing it, it comes pretty quickly you either have it or you don't <laughs> you, you find out pretty quick hi james my name is uh, professor yamni nigam and i'm at swansea university I'm an entomologist by training, so I spent um, most of my life looking at insects. And before I was into maggots, I was looking at insects that spread tropical diseases. And it wasn't until they asked me to teach a wound module for nurses, I came across something in 1998 called larval therapy. They had, of course, been you know used previously centuries ago and also in America, in the USA and Canada. With the advent of antibiotics in, in, in the 40s, they went, fell out of use. Let's go back through that long history, kind of like, what was our first known use of maggot therapy? How far back does it go? So we know that the the Aborigines of New South Wales and the Central American Indians, the Mayan Indians, used to soak pieces of cloth in in ox blood and hang it up to the sun. And that, of course, that would attract Lucilia sericata, a medicinal maggot, who would lay eggs. And as soon as those eggs had hatched into tiny little larvae, that would be used as a primitive dressing. Indeed, it's in the Bible. There is in the book of Job, there is a, a mention of the positive association between maggots and wounds. But if you're thinking about more modern times, I guess we have the field surgeons of the wars so in the Napoleonic War we had um, Napoleon's field surgeon Baron Dominic Larry who was one of the first to write reports that his soldiers had wounds that were infested with maggots but the wounds were healing there was no infection no fever so he was thrilled with that because it's a weird contradiction isn't it because today like if you just ask most people and you show them a picture of a wound without maggots and one with which is the one that's got the biggest problem exactly. you know your instinct would be uh, the one that's infested with maggots is is not a healthy wound no, absolutely right and of course all over the world we use clinically controlled species naturally infested wounds could be any maggot you can only use a non-invasive species such as the green bottle which does not eat healthy tissue and will just clean, debride, necrotic tissue. So just unclear, what is debridement? Debridement is from the French word debride, which simply means to get rid of. So when you've got a chronic wound, there's so much dead tissue and nothing will progress to heal if you've got all this blocking the wound bed. So debridement is the act of getting rid of that dead tissue. I always find the history of medicine fascinating because you've got an idea here which traces itself back to like ancient tribes. What 
killed it off as an idea because it had to be resurrected relatively recently. So kind of like, where did it go? So William Baer was a surgeon, orthopaedic surgeon in America, and he was also serving in World War One. And he again noted exactly as Dominic Larry had noticed that the soldiers who had wounds were actually healing with through maggots so when he got back after the war to his hospitals he started to rear clinical grade maggots for treatment for his patients who had horrible wounds that were festering and not healing and it became a remarkable success story in the 1930s i think over 300 hospitals were using it and it was excellent it was really working and then of course our most wonderful scientist ever i think alexander fleming found this mold that was producing a juice that was killing bacteria that he'd left in his lab it was known as mold juice and then it became industrially mass-produced as penicillin so who would want to put maggots in a wound when you could pop a little pill? It's kind of like a beautiful story then, because the reason why it's coming back is because antibiotics are starting to fail. Absolutely, uh, indeed. And that's one of the reasons why scientists sort of turned to the ancient therapy of maggots. It became um, available on the NHS in 2004 and, you know, worldwide approval in the early 2000s. Whether it's the usage is as high as it could be, that's all down to other factors. <laughs> So, um, here at the maggot farm, I'm being decked out in a face mask, gown, gloves and little blue boots. And I'm off to collect some eggs from the fly room. So Gemma, our production manager, is is pulling the containers out. So inside here, there's a little sieve and there's protein at the bottom. So the flies think they're laying their eggs on the protein. She pulls out the sieve. Can you show me an egg? I don't even know if I'm looking at the right thing. So they're laid in clumps. Clumps. Oh, so that's all eggs. I that, thought that was yeah. just like a ball of so cotton wool or something. No, 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 no. That's like, How many eggs are in there? That looks like... There's, there's probably 10,000. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Each group of cage will lay about 35 grams of eggs, which is about 35 million <laughs> larvae, oh. if we let them all hatch out. Yeah. Would you like to have Yes. Sorry, I sounded way too keen. Um, way too keen. If I have to. Yeah. <laughs> if I show you... Is my arm going in there? It is. Yeah. <laughs> you already said yes. Okay. You are. Yeah. You can have one minute. Okay, so hand goes in the lady's tights. Hands in. Gemma's a professional. No, them, so the So that there are no flies. Yeah, coming flies out. come out and then bring your arm back out of the leg. There's an art to it. She made it look simple. I'm very glad I'm wearing gloves. Another little shape. Happy? That looks good. I've got an escapee. He's out. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. Well Ta-da. done. Right, we've had to get changed again. yes so we are in a portion of the clean room where we start the egg separation process so all those eggs that you were just collecting getting that the flies sort of us. Yeah. all those clumps we want to separate those into individual eggs mm. so we want to make sure that we can disinfect the whole outer layer of that egg so what bev is doing here is she's adding a solution that's actually going to break up the little bits of glue that are holding those eggs into clumps mm-hmm. she places it on a rotator and we're spinning around Yes. It doesn't quite separate all of the clumps, and so the next step after this is to put them through a series of sieves. And why do you need them to be just individual eggs? If they're clumped together, even if it's just two stuck together, in between those two could be some bacteria. Since we're going to use this on a patient... You don't don't want want any of that stuff. (laughs) You don't need that making it through. Shall we skip all the way around to the final step then? Yes. Let's go have a look at some maggots. Let's go have a look. 
so you can get a biobag a minimum of 50 larvae inside of there all the way to a biobag 400 and it's a 10 by 10 centimeter square that sounds huge yes <laughs> so it's a big bag and it gives them enough room because they're going to grow quite big and then we heat seal the end and so the maggots are left within the bag and that means that you don't have free roaming maggots on your wounds um, they're sealed within this nice little almost tea bag like idea again don't come to mind for breakfast um, <laughs> you're really putting me off I know. and you can just set that in a wound then and it can yeah. set there for three to four days for the treatment time you've got some samples we can yes, have like, we do. so we'll start with the size the maggots start off first come off of the so plates. these are little tiddlers yes four to seven millimeters is what we're shooting they're, for they are small yes so they're about one day old they've got enough reserves that they can ship for that 48 hour time point until they need to be on to a patient and then we validated oh yeah they, they will be hungry when they get to the <laughs> to the patient and they're, they're ready to do their job so they're just tiny little white creamy color yeah. you can with see like a little black head black is, oh, head yes the head is yeah it, right? so that's yeah. the the mouth hooks yeah. um that they use to kind of help scrape and move along their surface yeah what are they eating so they eat necrotic tissue they like it as it's starting to go bad and go off because their enzymes that they secrete can actually break down that necrotic environment and they slurp that up the way that they feed is it's called extracorporeal digestion so outside the body so that's a much <laughs> better way of saying they barf up a load of digestive exactly. juices and suck exactly, it all up yes <laughs> it's like us spitting out our stomach acid or something onto something letting it kind of liquefy and then trying to slurp it back up but that leaves the healthy tissue yes. alone they don't have a need to break down healthy tissue yeah once they've done loads of extracorporeal digestion how big do they get so then they're going to get to about 14 to 15 <laughs> millimeters See, these things almost look cute. Yes. Those things do not. <laughs> it can be quite a shock if you've never seen it before when you open that wound and you see them start to grow. And so after four days, they're done feeding. You're not going to get anything more out of them. And so we say take them off of the wound. They're, so they're, be, still, they're still in the, t- the tea bag. They're at this in point, the tea right? bag yeah, at this they're, point. They're not yes, exactly. Burrowing it. Yeah, so it's easy to remove them. So they've done, they serve their purpose. No they've done their job. There is no happy practice. ending. The happy ending is for the patient who has now a wound that is improved and is probably likely going to go on towards healing. Well, that was quite disgusting, wasn't it? Just be thankful if you're feeling a bit at home that you're not actually having to be there or see any of the pictures. Sometimes audio is a blessing, isn't it? So now we're going to go to the Morriston Hospital in Swansea to see how they're actually used. Hi, Melly. How are you today? I'm fine, Ros. Any concerns with your feet since I've seen you last? The one I had a recent surgery on is still swelling a little bit and I'm getting quite a bit of neuropathy pain. So Melanie, who we heard from right at the beginning, is having one of her feet examined because of her type 1 diabetes. High blood sugar levels can lead to a loss of sensation in the feet, so injuries are more common, and it can also damage blood vessels so that wounds take longer to heal. My name is Ross Thomas. I'm one of the acute podiatrists here in the Diabetes Centre at Morriston Hospital in Swansea. Uh, We mainly deal with patients who've got severe wounds and they could be living with diabetes or just have vascular problems or just had an injury to their foot that's not healing. How many times have you used maggot therapy? Oh, hundreds of times. <laughs> You're a yeah, total practically pro. A, a weekly event, at least one patient a week gets maggot applications. Do you remember your first time? Yes. Like when I you can. first got into it? 26 years ago, I went up onto the ward to review a patient with one of the doctors, and the pharmacist was there. And the pharmacist said, Oh, quickest thing is, is you can put maggots on it. And I froze to the ground because I remember my brother fishing and seeing a pot of maggots. I thought, Oh, they're going to have to get somebody else to put these on. 
But then I thought, right, man up a bit or woman up a bit. And I put them on and thought, oh, it's not so bad. They're tiny little things. But when they came off, they were nearly a centimetre and they were just like my brother's jar of maggots when he went fishing. But the job they did was just absolutely amazing. The wounds were so clean afterwards. So, Melanie, maggots, tell me the story. I had an infection in my foot, I'm diabetic. I had my little toe and the next toe off and then like a quarter of my foot removed. And that was all very shocking and very quick and um, never thought it would happen to me. And within a week, I'd come to see the surgeon. I'd been discharged and came back in and the skin had started to die. I had a choice that um, I either have the maggots put on my wound or I could risk. And I'd been on Dr. Google and I knew the risks of losing my leg at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and if I lost my leg, how long my life expectancy was after that as well. But that's the choice you were facing. That was the maggots choice. Maggots or potentially well, rolling, or, the, rolling or, the dice. Or, or a lot longer healing. Process, You know, you'd have had to have waited for that necrotic skin to naturally fall off with other... I mean, there would be other treatments, not as effective as the maggots. Do you Um, remember the moment when someone first suggested it to you? I was quite depressed. I remember I was crying anyway. Do you know what I mean? You've been through a lot. Yeah, I mean, and very quickly. But I'd gone from, you know, looking at my mutilated foot. It was an open wound and it was huge. I'll show you pictures of it, but that's no good for the radio. But certainly I felt really upset with myself that I'd allowed this to happen. But it was mentioned and I did know about maggots. You know, I'd read about people having car accidents and being in the hidden for a week out in the middle of nowhere and that maggots had saved their foot or Mm. anyway uh, Roz suggested it to the surgeon at the time and he agreed normally you would have had to have gone away and um, ordered them and then you know perhaps the following day or a day later you know a couple of days later come and have them put on but there just happened to be a batch of them in the hospital because somebody hadn't needed them that morning and they'd been ordered and very quickly, within, I don't know, half an hour of being there, the decision being made, I had this giant tea bag on my foot with all these little tiny <laughs> wriggly things on the wound that you couldn't even see at I was say, point. did you get a good look before they went yeah, on? Yeah, they were they well, gruesome like that. I love to have a look at all that sort of stuff. But it, they, they were minute. They were almost like strands of cotton. And it was all done, done and dusted. I was picked up by my husband. And you guess what I've got on my foot? We're taking a... Normally, he's used to me bringing stray animals home, but not a leg full of maggots. I couldn't feel them, really. Mm. But it's like with somebody who mentions head lice. You know, you can't you help but scratch your head, <laughs> yeah. I think I was imagining that I could feel them. And they smelt more than anything. That was, you know... What was the smell? Oh, like the bottom of a dustbin. The first few days is fine, but you have to let them breathe. So you can't sort of cover it up with a bag or change the dressings or anything. You have to leave everything alone. Melanie mentioned about the smell. They do give off a smell of ammonia when they're cleaning up the wounds. Obviously, they're living creatures, so they're going to excrete as they as they eat, so to speak. And so you are going to get that ammonia smell with them. But as I say, they're just fantastically clever in getting all to the nooks and crannies and clean every little crevice up. Why aren't they used more widely then, if they're so good? I don't know. Whether it's education for other healthcare professionals, especially out in the community, or whether GPs look at the cost of one unit of them and think, oh, that's too expensive... A lot of the district nurses or the tissue viability nurses ring us here for advice, send us photographs, what do you think we should do with this foot or wound? 
and we suggest maggots and we explain how they order them and how they, they get them. So I think the word is getting out there more, not just hospital use. But is the evidence there that they are really good and really effective? Yes, there is. I mean, you know, there's lots of clinical studies and case studies to show how well they work and how efficient they are. I I would never not suggest it to a patient. I would always say the quickest way to clean up this wound and to get it to heal would be to put a bag of maggots on. They say... Really? What? (laughs) Some of them will just say, yeah, whatever. And some people say, oh, I'm going to have to think about this. So we've got patient information leaflets to give them so they can read up to it and they can look it up online. But most of them will, they're just terrified of losing their legs. They will agree to anything at that point. I have a real healthy attitude towards them now. You know, I salute them when I see them at the bottom of the recycling bin. You know, they are the most amazing thing and I would recommend anybody in that situation go through it if they can get their head around the idea of it because it so must fly swatter and the fly spray they've all been thrown no, out no well i never had them anyway everything deserves to live and I, and that was another problem i had with having the maggots was that i was a vegetarian you know i didn't like any thought of anything dying even if it was saving my foot possibly my life mm. but I went through it, I had it, and um, you're only shortening their life, I think, by a few days anyway. And they, and they ate well while well, they were there. They, you know, I fed them well. Did you see them when they came off? Yes, and I've got pictures as well. How big were they? They were like the size of cooked rice. Oh, I really, really hope you're not eating any rice right now. If you are, I'm sorry. Not that maggots would put Professor Yamni Nigam off her food here at Swansea University. They're her speciality and oh can you tell when you go around her office? Maggot pictures on the wall, themed mugs, even maggot cuddly toys. But what I wanted to find out from her was why aren't they being used more widely? Are we just a bit too squeamish or are there other problems here? Are they just too much hassle to use? Yeah, you know, I think there are many, many factors involved. One of them, as, as we've discovered in our research, is called the hassle factor. You can't just pick off a dressing that's in your shelf, a honey or silver or iodine, all these dressings are available, but maggots have to be ordered in at least the day before. Yeah, be really suspicious if your doctor goes, yeah, I've just got some maggots on the shelf. Yeah, don't, don't trust that doctor, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So then there's a factor of you have to go through a GP in the UK or in the hospital, you have to go through a pharmacy. It's whether they've got it on their system. Although the company are working to try and make that a lot easier. And of course, there is an inherent and cultural dislike of things like maggots, creepy crawlies. And it is one of those things that you have to explain very clearly to the patient the benefits of and the wisdom of using maggots as opposed to something else. And and what we usually find is that most nurses who lead wound care in the UK only prescribe maggots as a last resort. Wounds can stay stagnant for years. They've tried everything else that they possibly can. I was in a a meeting yesterday with some students from Cardiff University and one of the uh, podiatrists actually said that I always use it at the end and it works amazingly. Kind of, well, why, why well, don't you use, use, it, use it before? Yeah, and, and it's not just the cost of everything that you're using before, it's, it's the time for the, for the podiatry, for nursing, for, and, and for the poor patient to have this wound that isn't healing for like 18 months and then you put maggots on for four days and you see the turnaround it's absolutely amazing she's thinking yeah you know i probably should probably look at them as a first resort but it's for some reason it's just the last thing people look at have there been enough of the rigorous trials because like if you were to bring a new drug to market it gets trialed extensively before you know it gets rolled out do we have those big trials that go yeah maggots definitely do help wound healing we have a couple so because it's relatively new and doing a massive trial 
trial comparing maggots with an alternative dressing, for example, is a massive feat because you need so many patients that have very similar wounds. You have your control group that won't be treated on maggots and you have the group that will. So it was the University of York in the UK that carried out the most comprehensive study, Venus 2, I think it was called, on leg ulcers. And they absolutely found that for debridement, they found that it was amazing and it worked better than all the alternatives that they'd looked at. So that was the most rigorous trial. But there have been others that have looked at infection, disinfection of a wound, and others still that have looked at wound healing. And I would say for the latter two, there isn't your class one RCTs which are considered the know, gold standard. The gold standard. Yeah. yeah, I think we we need more of those. Where do you think this field is going? Because because we talked about antibiotics earlier and and mold morphed into a purified drug that could be manufactured and then prescribed to somebody. Do maggots need to go through the same process where actually you, you, you're going to look at what the maggots are doing and harvesting some of those enzymes that break down decaying tissue or some of those antimicrobials and that's what we're going to use in the future. Or is the future still maggoty? First of all, I'm a huge advocate of the real living thing because it is producing not just enzymes for debridement, it's producing a range of antimicrobial factors. And that's one of the things that we were studying for the last decade plus. We've isolated a tiny little antimicrobial factor, which we've trademarked as ceratocin. It's a tiny little molecule and it kills MRSA, it kills C. diff, even resistant bacteria. We've also found an antifungal factor. And in fact, a German group has recently shown that um, Lucilius aricata this green bottle fly possesses the genes for 47 different antimicrobial peptides which it will secrete once it's on the wound so isolating solitary factors yeah might work but then we might find that yes you've got the maggot seratin molecule out you've turned it into a brilliant cream or lotion or even tablet but that's it and you're not giving them the benefit of the other the cocktail, the other thing, the cocktail absolutely and we also know that some of the research that we've done here is that maggots can wound healing abilities as well. Once you've debrided a wound and got rid of all the dead tissue and then you've disinfected a wound, that wound can only heal when good cells that we call fibroblasts enter the wound and start to make the new collagen, the new elastin. And we've found that maggots entice that. All the research is showing that fibroblast migration occurs better if you've had maggots present on your wound. You understand why they're eating your dead flesh because that's it's an entirely selfish act but why are they secreting antibiotics basically into that area to clear out bacteria and why are they promoting wound healing surely they'd want the wound to stay open so they could keep munching away right absolutely yeah you've got you've got such a good point here first of all if we look at the natural environment the female fly will lay her eggs where there is something for the little larvae to feed on she will lay in dead carcasses now we also know that the very first decomposers of a dead rat or a pigeon or a sheep or whatever are going to be bacteria and fungi because they are primary decomposers. So they will be starting that process. The little larvae will emerge and suddenly have a horde of bacteria around it and have fungi around it. So they're the competition. So they're the competition. So for their own survival, maggots have evolved awesome antimicrobial molecules. So that's why in a wound, they'll be secreting those. They will secrete, I think, times sixfold if they're put in with an infection. Well, you've converted me until the next time I open my kitchen bin and there's just a swarm of them escaping. I got you, but that might not be Lucilis aricata. That might be another horrible species of housefly or blue bottle. 
Well then, what do you think? Are you converted by maggots or is it just something a little bit too yucky to go anywhere near your body? Or do you just wish you hadn't listened to this programme whilst having something to eat? I don't know. That's Discovery from the BBC with me, James Gallagher. The producer was Paula McGrath. It's the 11th of March, 2011. A massive earthquake measuring 9.1 on the Richter scale strikes the east coast of Japan. It cripples roads, severs power lines, and claims the lives of over 18,000 people. And then... Mega tsunami warning. Repeat, mega tsunami warning. The Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, still reeling from the quake, is struck by a tsunami. It crashes over the protective seawalls, flooding the facility, cutting its power. What follows is a full-scale nuclear emergency. All control facilities inoperable. Water supply to reactor cores cut off. Fukushima, an original seven-part audio drama series from the BBC World Service, telling the story of how the disaster unfolded and of those living with its aftermath. Search for Fukushima wherever you get your BBC podcasts.